Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. Okay, today is our sixth in our series on uh, just a coincidence where we're looking at uh, what I've called a little primer on the providence of God. And today we're going to be looking at uh, some things from the life of Abraham with the, uh, with the title, Abraham, the Lord will provide. And we'll see where that's even used in Scripture here in just a few minutes. Uh, once again, just by way of reminder, I put the uh, definition, at least Webster's definition for providence in your notes there. Uh, and I'll just read that. You can follow along with me with your notes if you like. Active foresight or foresight accompanied with the procurement of what is necessary for future use, the care or benevolent guidance of God or nature. So it's the idea that God not only sees ahead what's going to happen, but God makes the perfect provision for that, taking care of everything that needed, needs to be taken care of. And certainly God has provided for, from, the, uh, from the beginning for his people. I mean, you read the, the Bible, and from Genesis, the beginnings, until Revelation, at the end of the book, you see time after time after time where God provides, and he usually does at the very last moment. Uh, God is, seems to be sort of the God of 1159, but nevertheless, he does provide. Uh, to sort of set the tone for talking about uh, Abraham, I want you to look with me, if you will, at that little fine print there in the left-hand column because one of the themes that goes through the uh, book of uh, the, the entire Bible, every book of the Bible, is the theme of redemption. That is that God was going to buy back his people from, uh, from sin. And <clears throat> what we see in this passage from Genesis chapter 3 is we kind of see the, the genesis of that. We see where sin begins and how it really didn't catch God by surprise that God had already made perfect provision, that he knew what he was going to do. When you read the book of Genesis, when you read Genesis 3, and the man and the woman in the garden have sinned, you, there's nothing in there where you see the members of the Godhead looking at each other, wringing their hands, saying, Oh my, what are we going to do now? Uh, this has certainly caught us by surprise, because clearly that's not the case. But remember, the, uh, uh, and you can't blame it on the environment, because remember Adam and Eve both were in an absolutely perfect environment. Everything was just exactly right. Wonderful place. They would have lived forever there. The only prohibition that they had was that they were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that was set in the middle of the garden. And of course, uh, the old evil one who had been created as Lucifer but had fallen some time in eternity, we don't know exactly when that was, was there in the garden in a form of a serpent to tempt the woman. And, um, and I don't want the women to get a bad rap here because uh, as we'll see in our reading, the man was right there with her and didn't say anything when all of this occurred. Notice what happens. Uh, we'll read from Genesis chapter 3. It says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, remember the, 
the old evil one had said, you know, God's just holding out on you. You got all this stuff, but there's one thing He won't let you have because God doesn't want you to have this because He knows that in the, the day you eat of this, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God yourself. So, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband, notice, who was with her. And he ate it. Why didn't he speak up? Well, he, the Bible doesn't say. He just didn't. Uh, and this should remind us of that passage from 1 John chapter 2 where it warns us about the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the sinful pride of life. That's what we see right here. The lust of the flesh. It was good for food. The, uh, the lust of the eyes. It was pleasing to the eye. And the boastful pride of life. It was desirable for gaining wisdom. She ate, he ate, and it says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So, they're, uh, they're, they realize that they've sinned. They are experiencing guilt. They're experiencing the feelings of guilt. And in order to deal with that guilt, what's, what is it that they do? They try to cover themselves. And they cover themselves with some vegetation there that's, uh, that's in the garden. You noticed what they didn't do and what the, what the scriptures are clear is that they never say, oh no, what have we done? What have we done? Let's find God. You know, he comes here in the cool of the garden every day to walk and talk with us. Let's, let's be sure and be out here on time, meet with him, tell him what we've done. Absolutely not. What did they do? They hid. That's right. Same thing we do. And so God comes looking for them. And it says, so the Lord, and, and remember, the Lord is the one who comes and searches. So Adam, where are you? God wasn't looking for information. He wanted Adam to realize where Adam was. And of course, Adam's response was what? Yeah, it was the woman that you gave me. So what, he not only shifted the blame to her, he even tried to shift the blame back to God. He said, look, uh, if you'll recall, I never asked for this. I mean, I just woke up one day and there was this... Uh, I had a, I realized I'd had some general anesthesia and some surgery done, and there's this uh, person over here. Did I ever ask for her? So he was uh, trying to weasel out of things here. And so, of course, what, what God does is he pronounces uh, curses for what they've done. And notice I, we pick up the, uh, the story again here. It says, So the Lord God said to the servant, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. There was apparently a time when serpents didn't crawl on their bellies. Maybe they were like lizards or something like that. And you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, that is the children of the devil, and her offspring, he will crush your head. Now, who is this he that he's talking about? Well, he's talking about this woman's, the, ultimately this woman's offspring. And this is what is known in, the, in theological circles as the proto-evangelicum. Now, that's one of those $5 theological words, but it means it is the first mention of the gospel. It's the first mention of the good news 
that right here in the midst of all the sin and degradation and they're attempting to uh, cover themselves with vegetation rather than going to God. God has to come look for them in the midst of all of that. What God does is He promises that there is one who is going to come who will crush the head of the serpent. And of course, ultimately, we know that refers to whom? Jesus, that's right. He's the one who will ultimately fulfill that. And you will strike his heel. And that is the old, the old devil was going, to be, was going to try to be a thorn in the side of Jesus. And that's exactly what, uh, what he was. Notice what the Lord does, and it's the last statement in that real small print there. It says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So, what's the, in, what's the inference here? Well, the inference here, to, that's right, it's about sacrifice. What does it say about Adam's and Eve's own self-efforts to cover themselves and deal with their own guilt? They couldn't do it. It was totally inadequate. There had to be a sacrifice. And notice, God didn't clothe them and said, well, you know, if I'd been y'all, I wouldn't have picked those fig leaves. I'd have picked these banana leaves over here. No, God didn't clothe them with banana leaves either. He clothed them with skin. He didn't clothe them with wool that he gathered from a sheep, but it's actually the skin of an animal, which presupposes what had happened to the animal. The animal had to die. So here's a picture right here in Genesis chapter 3. And the whole, that is the, is the beginning of the theme of redemption, and it's going to appear over and over and over throughout the entire Bible. And every time it appears, this, we're going to understand just a little bit more and a little bit more. There's no way that Adam and Eve understood in the garden that day all the ramifications and all the things that you and I understand as we read it because they were on the front end. We're on the back end looking, looking back at all of this and we can see all of these other verses that go along with it. So their efforts were inadequate. They needed God to clothe them and in, and in order to do that it required a death, the death of an innocent uh, animal in this case and so there are two concepts that come out of this that are very important for us first of all the concept of sacrifice and that has to do with blood and the reason the reason uh, that blood is used is because life is in the blood you you uh, a person who has an aneurysm who that finally bursts can be sitting in the waiting room of the uh, in the emergency room of the hospital and have an aneurysm turn loose on you and there's nothing they can do for you. Why? Because you lose all of that blood. It's just gone. And the life is in the blood. Alright. And the other concept is that of substitution. That is that the person, the sinner himself or the sinner herself cannot take care of the guilt him or herself. And the reason is because the person has the problem that they are sinners. So it's going to take some sort of substitute to deal with this kind of thing. I want to read you a brief passage. It's not in your notes here, but uh, I, and I don't. If you want to jot the references down, you can. It's from Hebrews chapter nine, and it's verses eleven through fourteen. Notice what uh, the writer of Hebrews says. And remember, in the book of Hebrews, uh, there's a tremendous contrast that's going on. The key word in the book of Hebrews is the word "better." Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Aaron. The new covenant is better than the old covenant. Uh, the sacrifice that Jesus made is a better sacrifice than the sacrifices under the Levitical priesthood. 
Let me just read you these three or four verses from Hebrews 9, beginning at verse 11. It says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is, it wasn't a temple that he entered. That is to say, not of this creation. He's talking about he's gonna, he's gonna, he took care of things uh, with the temple of his body by dying in the place of his people. And not through the blood of goats and calves. That's the old Levitical way of dealing with uh, uh, ceremonial guilt. But through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, once for all time, that's what he means, having obtained eternal redemption. Uh, isn't it great that when God saves us, he also keeps us. We can't get away from it. We may be like Jonah and try to run to the end of the earth, but the Lord will never, ever get us away. It's eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, that is, they would make you ceremonially clean under the Old Testament law, but they couldn't really do anything about the real guilt of sin. Verse 14, how much more, see, even better, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So, and in fact, in the book of Revelation, I think I made a note, yeah, in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, in referring to Christ, it speaks of him as the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, before God ever put the first star in space, before God ever, uh, before any of creation that we read about here in, in, in the book of Genesis, and certainly before Adam and Eve were, ever came into being and were placed in the garden, the Bible says Jesus was slain from the foundation of the earth. That is, in the mind of God, God already knew exactly what was going to happen and he had made the perfect provision for that. And in the passage that we just read from Genesis chapter 3, when he talks about he will crush the serpent's head, is a reference to the fact that eventually Messiah would come and he would die for the sins of his people. Now, with that background in mind, let's think a little bit about, uh, about Abraham. Now, when, uh, when we first run across Abraham in the Bible, he's not called Abraham. What's he called? Abram, that's right. Abram means exalted father. Abraham means the father of many nations. Now, what, uh, what is ironic about both those names as far as this man in the Bible is concerned? Abraham, exalted father. How, I, he didn't have any kids, that's right. I, can you imagine what it was like? You know, when you, you go, to the, go to the Rotary Club and you get introduced for the first time. said, I want you to meet Abram. Oh, exalted father. Tell me about your children. said, well, my wife and I don't have any kids. So, well, how'd you get that name then? I, I guess mom just gave it to me. Remember, he was called out of Ur of the Chaldees. He was an unbeliever. Ur of the Chaldees was in the area where the old the Neo-Babylonian Empire eventually would grow up. And God brought him. Uh, he eventually made it down to the land of Canaan. Uh, we'll draw our little... Well, let's do it this way. Here's, uh, we'll draw sort of a minimized map. And uh, this would be the Arabian Peninsula way over here, and Ur of the Chaldees would be here. Remember, this is all desert region, modern-day Saudi Arabia here. 
And so the way that, uh, that Abraham and his family got from Ur and the Chaldees over here to the, to the land of Canaan was they took this route. It was an upward route and then a downward route like this. This is what's known. You've heard references to something called the Fertile Crescent because this is all desert in, uh, in this area here. The, uh, the eastern side of the, the Fertile Crescent, the thing that made it uh, fertile, was that you had uh, the rivers uh, Tigris and Euphrates flowing over here. So this was a, a great agricultural area, as was this area, particularly in, uh, in northern Canaan. So remember, uh, God called Abram, told him to leave and, and go to a place that he would show him. Remember, they stopped in a place called Haran or Haran for several years. And it's at, at, at this place that uh, Abraham's, uh, Abram's dad, Terah, died. And after he died, <clears throat> Abram, Sarai, and uh, Abram's nephew, whose name was Lot, uh, came southwest into the land of Canaan. And, and God made a covenant with them there, and it's called the Abrahamic covenant. Remember, it had three parts. God promised Abraham three things. He promised him some real estate, land. He promised him offspring, and he promised him blessing, that, uh, that he, would, he himself would be blessed, his family would be blessed, but also that he would be a blessing to the people around about him. And what I want us to see is that uh, we're going to just look at some of these uh, passages here in a minute and see how all of this kind of worked out and how Abraham, Abram who became known as Abraham, sought to try to help God out, to try to make things happen, fouled it up every time that he did that sort of thing. But God was always there, had the right provision at exactly the right time. And it was never a coincidence that's the providential care of, uh, of God. All right, let's, uh, let's begin to look at Genesis chapter 15. Verse 1 says, after this, and in order to understand that, remember that the word this refers to the rescue of, <clears throat> of Lot. Remember that Lot had been taken captive and uh, had been carried off, and so Abram went after him. With, uh, with the folks who worked for him and had rescued Lot, and then Abram got to thinking, oh no, well I may have stepped in it now because I've made these local chieftains around here mad by defeating them in order to get my nephew Lot back. It says, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. Why should he be afraid? Well, because he had all these chieftains around him, tribal chieftains who were upset over some of the things he had been doing. The Lord says, I am your shield. What purpose does a shield serve? It protects. That's right. We hold it up in front of us and uh, the, the fiery darts and the stones and the stuff bounce off of all of that. I am your shield, your very great reward. Your shield is your, God is our protection. Reward, God is our provider. But Abram said, Oh, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? Notice, even though his name means exalted father, how many kids does he have right now? None. What will you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? Apparently, Eliezer, uh, remember Damascus is, uh, is north of the land of Canaan right up here in Syria. 
And apparently, uh, this guy, Eliezer, must have been like the chief uh, steward in, for Abram's family. And it was not uncommon at all when a, when a family had no male heirs to take someone like the chief steward and sort of adopt them into the family, and they would be the one who would receive the inheritance when the time came. Verse 3, And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. Now, it's important to, to note right here because I think it helps explain why Abram chose to do some of the things that he did. Is there any mention of Abram's wife in this passage here? There's really not. He said, No, the son's going to come from your body. Now, sometimes you think, well, that's not a big deal. I think we'll see it is. In fact, verse 5, it says, He took him outside, God took him, Abram, outside, and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Now, what, is, what, is, uh, what was God saying to Abram when he told him to look up and count the stars? That's right. He said, Your offspring, is gonna, they're going to be just numerous. And remember, there are... Uh, I left out a letter, offspring. There's a, uh, there are three actual fulfillments of this offspring. The, the first one, obviously, is Isaac himself, who was the uh, direct descendant. Uh, the second one is, of course, uh, the Lord Jesus, who is uh, ultimately going to come through this line. And then the third one um, are all believers, because the, uh, in Galatians chapter 3, it says, if you are Christ's, that is, if you belong to him, if you're a saved person, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. So this had, uh, now, did Abram understand all of this? Of course not. The only thing Abram was thinking about was this one right here. Didn't have a name yet. All he knew was that uh, God was going to promise him some offspring. <clears throat> and notice Abram's response. Abram believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, credited it to him, Abram, as righteousness. And remember, that's one of the big verses that Paul uses in the book of Romans to talk about justification. That Abraham, how was Abraham justified? How did Abraham come to be a saved person? He believed God. When we read the book of Galatians, we read, uh, it tells us that God was preaching the gospel to Abraham through this. It's real clear in the gospel. God, uh, Abraham's believing uh, that the Lord is going to do exactly what he said. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Oh, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I'll gain possession of it? And of course, it, it's at this point that God makes the unilateral covenant with Abram, which came to be known as the Abrahamic covenant. And uh, remember, you'll remember the story how God told him to take some animals and to, uh, to uh, kill them and then cut them in pieces. And so Abram had, uh, had put these pieces of animal uh, lined them up side by side. I think there were also some birds, and of course he couldn't divide those up, so he had them sort of piled down here on either side. 
And any time you made a covenant in the Near East experience, uh, the covenanters, and in this case it would be God and Abram, what they would do is they would pass between the pieces of flesh and they would, they would declare what they promised to do and they would declare, um, and the other one would declare what he was going to do and they'd walk back and forth between these pieces of uh, flesh and essentially what they were saying is if I don't do what I've promised to do, then you have the right to do to me and to all of my offspring the very thing that's happened to these animals right here, and that is you can take their lives. Well, if you'll recall what happened in the story, by the time it came sundown, you know, uh, you got all this roadkill laying out there, essentially, and uh, <clears throat> what, happens, uh, what happens when you leave dead, dead, what happens to dead animals that just stay on the road for any length of time? What do you see when you come across the come across the hill and you, you come up on one, what's, uh, what's circling overhead or what's down there with them? The birds, that's right. So Abraham's been beating the birds off all day, you know, keeping them away from the sacrifice. And by the time it gets dark, he's exhausted. And so what happens is old, uh, old Abraham just lies down over here and goes sound asleep. So here he is, cutting the Z's over here. And while he's asleep, God... Uh, uh, what we call a theophany. God appears in the form of a smoking furnace, as it was, and God passes between these pieces of flesh, and he reaffirms all these promises. I promise to give you land. I promise to give you offspring. I promise to bless you. I promise that you will be a blessing to many people. So what did Abram promise? He didn't promise anything. He's asleep. This is what's known as a unilateral covenant. God said, regardless of what happens, I'm going to do this. You can't keep me from doing this. So that was the proof for him. Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. Remember, there was a famine in the land at one point, and... Uh, it was one of Abram's weak moments, and so what he did was he went south uh, down to Egypt where he heard there was some uh, things to eat down there, and of course he got in trouble right away because folks started eyeing his wife. Apparently she was sort of a looker, and uh, how did Abram deal with that? Anybody remember? Yeah, I said, this is my sister. Can you imagine what that would do to a relationship between a couple of folks? That's a story for another day. But before they came back, uh, one of the things that they brought back with them, they acquired a little maidservant named Hagar. <clears throat> Verse 2, so she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Well, that's no question about that. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Now, we look at that and we say, what a horrible idea. And it is a horrible idea. But in that day, it was not unusual. In fact, it was a customary thing to do that if a woman was barren, that a maidservant could be brought in. Uh, the, the husband could have uh, sexual intercourse with his maidservant with the wife present at the time. If, when she conceived, when it came time to bear the child, the, uh, the, the maidservant would be on the birthing stool. The wife would be right there face to face with her knees almost together. And when the baby came down the birth canal, the, uh, the child would become, as it were, the child of the, of the wife. So 
Customary, this went on all the time in these kinds of uh, situations. Now, now essentially, what, what are they doing? Well, you know, God's made these promises and God's even promised offspring, but years have passed and no offspring have come, so what are they doing now? They're taking things into their own hands. Let's help God out. You know, God must need some help on this. And I can, I can hear old Sarai now saying, well, you know, you, you, you remember, I, you remember I, I remember you telling me about that time God met with you, and God said he was going to bring a son from your body. He didn't say anything about me at all, so, you know, maybe this is what we ought to do. Well, you know how guys are. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. And he slept with Hagar, and she conceived. And the result of that conception was the birth of a child whose name was Ishmael. That's right. Okay. So you've got, uh, you've got Abram. He's uh, married to Sarai. And uh, now he's got a concubine named Hagar. And the result of this, uh, this uh, union with the concubine is Ishmael. And the name Ishmael means God hears. This uh, E-L ending is the, is the word for God, El, Elohim. God hears. God heard the, uh, heard the prayers of Hagar. So, now notice what happened. Now, incidentally, uh, Genesis 16, verse 16, tells us that when this happened, when this child was born, that Abram was 86 years old. 86 years old when Ishmael was born. Chapter 17, when Abram was 99 years old. All right, so how much time's passed? 13 years have passed. Ishmael now is how old? He's 13 years old. Okay. Now, here's an old man who's just poured his life into this kid. How, when he looks at Ishmael, what does he see? That's right. He's proud of this kid. This kid has got to be what God promised. In fact, there's no incidents where God speaks to Abraham between during these 13 years. And so Abram is, uh, is assuming, uh, by now, Abram, uh, after this Abrahamic covenant, incidentally, his name Abram has been changed to Abraham, the father of of a, uh, of a multitude, notice uh, what happens. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. This is about the time that his name is changed. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. And verse 15 says, God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you're no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son. What? By her, I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. And Abraham at 99 years old's immediate response is laughter. Abraham fell face down. 
he laughed and said to himself, notice he didn't have the integrity to say it out loud. He said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, notice, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. And here's a guy who's been living on false information for 13 years. He's just assumed this is the promise. And all of a sudden, what does he discover about Ishmael? He's not the one. No, the blessing is blessing's not going to come through Ishmael. The blessing is going to come through a child that Sarah is going to bear. Oh, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing, then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I've heard you. I will surely bless him. You know, I don't, I don't mean any harm against Ishmael. I'm going to bless him. I'll make him fruitful, will greatly increase his numbers. He'll be the father of 12 rulers, and I'll make him into a great nation. But, verse 21, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. Now, incidentally, uh, Sarah is behind a tent flap. She overhears this conversation. And do you remember what her response is to the conversation? She laughed. So Abraham's laughed. Sarah's laughed. But who gets the last laugh? God does. That's right. And in fact, when, uh, when this child a year later, almost a year later, is born, we know this is Isaac. And what does Isaac's name mean? It means laughter. That's right. <laughs> Don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor about some things. Now, why would God, why would God say, I'm not going to establish my covenant with Ishmael. I'm going to establish my covenant with Isaac. Why would God do that? Is it because Isaac deserves it and Ishmael doesn't deserve it? No. It's because of the gracious choice of God Almighty himself. He said, no, I'm just going to bless this. In fact, one of, the, one of the problems here, Abraham, is this, this is Ishmael, nice kid, but Ishmael is a result of your self-effort. You're trying to help me out. You're trying to do it on your own. Look here. You're 99 years old. How old is Sarah at this point? Yeah, she is, uh, she's 89 to 90 years old, and uh, she's going to be pregnant. She's going to have a baby next year. I mean, everything was against this possibly happening. I mean, this is just, nature just didn't seem to work this way. Chapter 21. Now God, now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. What do we learn from that? God means what he says, and he says what he means. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. All right, so Isaac grows up. Incidentally, Ishmael and Hagar finally just leave the scene. There's so much animosity between, uh, between Ishmael and Isaac and actually between Hagar and, uh, and Sarah that, that Hagar and Ishmael finally leave. And in fact, Paul makes reference to that again in Galatians where he says, remember, uh, Hagar and Ishmael represent the old covenant and what happened to them? They were cast out. Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for she shall not inherit. 
with, uh, with, uh, with my son Isaac. But it was through Sarah, through Isaac, through the son of promise. Everything looked like there's no possible way that this can happen. And God says, this is what I've been waiting for. You can't help yourself physically. You're beyond all of this. Sarah's already passed menopause. Now let me show you what a miracle working God will do. And this kid is going to be the one through whom the covenant comes. And so Isaac grows up. And he gets, gets up probably into his teens as best we can tell. Somewhere probably between about 13 to 17 years old. And one night in the middle of the night, God awakens Abraham. And he's got some unusual instructions for him. And that's in Genesis chapter 22. Remember, when God gives us a gift, we need to be sure and hold it with open hands because we don't want God prying our fingers off of it. It hurts when that happens. See, our tendency is to emphasize what God provides rather than emphasizing God as the provider himself. Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Notice, your only son. Well, wait a minute. I, th he, I thought he had no... Yeah. How about Ishmael? No. Ishmael doesn't count because he's not the son of the covenant. Isaac is the son of the covenant. Your only son, the one that God recognizes, whom you love. This is the one that your life is invested in. And go to the region of Moriah. We know now that the region of Moriah was in these hills here in the, uh, in the Judean desert. It's uh, essentially where, uh, where Jerusalem and that area is today. Ultimately, the, uh, where this occurs is where eventually the temple would be, uh, would be built many centuries later under the leadership of Solomon. Take him to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. Remember, a burnt offering was an offering of praise and thanksgiving. This is not a sin offering, but a burnt offering. On one of the mountains, I'll tell you. Er, now, if I'm Abraham, I'm thinking, whoa, wait a minute. How can, what's God doing? After all, God said he's going to make my offspring like the, uh, like the stars in the sky. If he's about to get rid of my only son, how can he possibly do that? And I'd had all kind of questions. I'd have probably had a cold by the next morning, so I had to tell God I was going to have to delay till I got better. Not, not Abraham. Verse 3, early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He, now, he said to his servants, Now please notice what Abraham said. These are words of faith. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship. Now, who, who are the we? Abraham and Isaac. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Well, wait a minute. Part of the purpose of going over there was to do what? Was to sacrifice this kid. Why would he say, we're coming back? Well, Paul remarks about this in the book of Romans, and he says... Ah, not a, yeah, in the book of Romans, he talks about Abraham's faith. But the passage I'm thinking about is the one that, uh, 
that, that comes, uh, comes a little bit later in the book of Hebrews where he talks about the fact that he was so convinced that if, if he was going to have to take this boy's life and sacrificing him, he was so convinced that God was going to fulfill his promise that he knew that God would have to raise that boy from the dead. We will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Now, if I'm Abraham, I am in tears by now. Where's the lamb? And you see, this kid, he's old enough to know what's going on, and he's doing it willingly, which says a lot for Isaac. But notice Abraham's wise response of faith. Verse 8, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And then you remember what happened. They got up there to the top of Moriah, and uh, Abraham laid the stones out, took the firewood off Isaac, laid it down there, then, then bound Isaac. Now remember, Isaac's old enough that he could have resisted this old man, but he didn't do it. He bound him, he laid him there on the wood, he pulled out the knife, and he was ready to sacrifice the boy. And all of a sudden, before he could plunge that knife, the angel of the Lord stopped him and said, Do no harm to the child. And then all of a sudden, there was a noise behind Abraham. And you know what that noise was? It was a ram caught in the thicket. Verse 12 says, Don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. Now I know you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. Notice, it was not a lamb. It was a ram. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. What do we see here? The, very, the two concepts we talked about right at the start of our session together today. The concept of sacrifice, the, 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 the concept of substitution. Sacrifice had to be made in order to please God. But... Here's the substitution. God says you're not to offer up your son. You're to offer up this ram in the place of your son. Just as God had killed the animals in the Garden of Eden and had clothed Adam and Eve with their skins. And notice what Abraham says. Verse 14. So Abraham called that place. And in the Hebrew, it's the word Yahweh Yireh. The Sometimes we hear the words Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And that's exactly what God did here. And this is a real limited, as it were, picture of the ultimate provision. In this case, Isaac was spared. Isaac didn't have to die there on the mountain. But there would come a time millennia later when the only begotten Son of God would be escorted out of the city of Jerusalem outside the gates and God would not spare his own son. He who did not spare his own son 
but delivered him, delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? What do we conclude from all of this today? Well, I've put three things there in your notes, and perhaps you can draw some application from that. First of all, none of us have a valid claim on God's grace. Grace is free. It's unmerited. It's something that we, we don't deserve. The only thing that God owes us as sinners is a one-way ticket to eternal separation. That's what God owes us. In fact, I, I saw the, uh, the administrator of the church uh, as I was coming in here just a few minutes ago. And um, he said, how are you doing? And I said, I'm doing much better than I deserve. And he said, you know, he said, so am I. You're exactly right. I said, I said the last thing I want is justice. I'm looking for grace. I'm looking for mercy because that's what I need as a sinner. Salvation's no accident. It's the gift of God from eternity. It, God's plan has been in position before he ever put the first star in space. He had already planned exactly what he was going to do, how he's going to bring his people to himself. And the ultimate purpose of salvation is God's glory. And when God works in our lives and bring, bringing us to himself, he glorifies himself in doing that. It's a mistake to try to make God's promises come to pass. The more you and I grasp for power or try to grasp for power or make it happen, the more frustrated we become. Very often God does orchestrate disruptions in our lives, just like he did in Abraham's life, so that we have the opportunity to trust him. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't always do real well in that. But I'm encouraged by the fact that God never gives up on us as his children. You know, you may, you may, you may, flunk, the, uh, you may flunk the test, but you don't flunk the course. Isn't it great? God's will is always going to be done, and God's desire is that we trust in him. The death of our Lord Jesus was both sacrificial and substitutionary. He is the Lamb of God who offered himself up willingly for his people. And there is no other way. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.